Welcome back to Real Early. My name is Larry Sternshein, and today's episode asks the question, how does loving movies help a person get them into show business? My guest this week to answer this question is award-winning editor Ashley Lynch. When the world stopped in 2020 due to the pandemic, I find myself spending a lot of time with other Patreons of the podcast Junk Food Cinema with Brian Salisbury and C. Robert Cargill, a show I highly recommend you listen to. Like a lot of people during this time, Junk Food Cinema would often run group Zooms to entertain us on the weekends. I met many wonderful people in this community through these Zooms, including today's guest. Now, Ashley's also Canadian, which was another reason why I was excited to get her on the program. One of the goals of my show is to be able to talk to people from all around the world so we can learn about the differences and similarities that we all share. In this episode, we talk about some of those differences between Canadian and United States media. Right now, Ashley is best known for working for the hit show Ninjago, which is currently in its 15th season. I wanted to learn more about how she got into editing, and just how the fans have embraced the trailers she makes for the show. I think this episode will be especially good for anybody who is looking at getting into the business themselves. We discuss whether going to film school is a good decision, how her parents felt about going to school for film, and the importance of holding on as long as possible. This was a very fun conversation, and I hope that you enjoy the episode with my guest, Ashley Lynch. All right. So, uh, Ashley, thank you for coming on my program. Thanks for having me. So you're you're. Um, I'll have, I'll edit this up. But such <laughs> what what a great start to the program. You know, uh, auspicious beginnings. <laughs> So, well, the first thing actually I, I, I wanted to talk to you about just real brief is uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, maybe about, I guess about a month ago, uh, online was the Ninjago trailer that came out mm-hmm. and the response to it was uh, quite large because there's a big fan base in Ninjago. And I was just wondering, what was the response like for you uh, when when it came out, like, because was this one of the the biggest trailer reveals that you've had so far or uh it probably is yeah i think there's probably like bigger ones that are coming up but uh because there's still like the the trailer that came out is just for like the first half of the season and so there's gonna be another another teaser and a trailer for the the second half of the season which i think is even bigger and probably some of my best work yet but definitely ninjago is probably the thing that because I do a lot of trailers but it's usually for more independent productions and whatnot and Ninjago definitely has the largest fan base of anything I've done done trailer work for before and uh it's kind of wild because like for the first time in my life all of a sudden here's a trailer that I created and you know with the help with a lot of other people too but I'm mostly like left to my devices to come up with like the best trailer possible and it goes out into the world and of course because the large fan base they're all excited and ecstatic and suddenly there's like dozens of reaction videos like picking it apart and looking at every frame of it and I've just never had that before and it's seriously it's both wild exciting and really kind of like humbling and scary when you were putting the trailer together did you kind of think about how the fans might actually do that like go frame by frame or you you're just looking to make the best trailer possible to get the most excitement from the fans i i think this is probably like the 
uh, like the 10th trailer that I've done for Ninjago at this point. Um, I've, I've done quite a few. I also edit the series and have for about the last five years. And the, um, one the I remember one of the first trailers um, that I cut, I, you know, put together and like it get, goes through the approval process. And the, the higher ups at Lego at one point, there was like one shot. There's like, no, no, we need to pull this out. Otherwise the fans will know it's this and this and this. And I'm like, really? Because that seems like really kind of disconnected from context. I don't think anyone's going to get that. And sure enough, when the trailer came out, I was surprised the details they were picking out. It was amazing. So ever, ever since that point, I'm like, no, no, always err on the side of caution with that because it, anything that they could possibly pick out, they will. And then you start to get scared about the things that you include in it because you don't want to give too much away. Yeah, I imagine that that must be that fine line between getting people excited, but also giving them wanting more. Yeah. And it's always like a little bit of a double-edged sword too, because like, you know, I talk about all these reaction videos that come out to the trailer, but ultimately what they're not critiquing my trailer, how good or, you know, bad they think it is. What they're mostly looking for is like details that are clues to the season that's going to be upcoming. Advanced information sort of thing, which really doesn't have much to do with how good or bad my trailer actually is, but they're still talking about it and they're excited about it. And that's, what's fun. Yeah. That's, that's actually pretty special to have a community. That's a uh, that positive about something that you're creating, just, you know, considering what, how people can act online. It's, it's nice to have somebody, people excited. In a yeah. I'm definitely way. lucky in that um, the fan base is pr generally pretty positive. Um, and it's, it's, it definitely makes it a lot easier to uh, to be part of something when you know it's not uh, not full of the you know what other fan bases seem to be infected by some sometimes. What? I guess that's the most diplomatic way I could put it. That, that's that's actually uh, better than than some of the other ones out there. So that's good to hear. Uh, <laughs> you know how people are. The people are yeah. crazy. Yeah, um, for sure. So my my first question then I would have beyond that is like you've been editing for quite a while now what was it about editing that got you excited to learn that craft was there uh like a moment in your life where you're like I want to do that you want to know the worst answer possible yeah I, the worse the better okay well here here's the real reason I became an editor because it's something I could get paid for um <laughs> Uh, okay, so the, the less glib version is that I always wanted to work in film. Originally, I think it was as a writer and then I expanded to like writer-director. And I've just always wanted to tell stories in some fashion or another. And at a certain point, um, I was able to start to insert myself into the film industry. And I went to school, um, got to film school on a scholarship. It was the only way I could get there. And... Uh, once I was like nearing the end of school and the entire experience, I was like determined to suck the bone marrow out of and get like every last cent possible. And I want the, the one thing I knew is I did not want to leave film school and go and get a job at Starbucks as a barista, constantly 
trying to do that and also work myself into the film industry because I knew it was going to be too easy for me to settle into the day job and let the other thing just slip by. I knew I had to be working in film from day one as soon as I left school. And very early on through the schooling process, I realized, okay, once I'm out of school, no one's gonna pay me to write and no one's gonna pay me to direct. I'm gonna have to do years and years of proving myself before I can do that. But they will pay me to edit because that's, a lot of people see that as more of a technical skill, even though it's also a creative skill. And I can put together a system that's good enough and I can stick up my shingle as soon as I leave school and I can take on editing jobs. So that's what I did. I sank every last cent I had into building up a system that was good enough to edit on and just started doing small jobs wherever I could and built from there. And you know, for that reason, it's kind of the niche that I've fallen into and I love editing. It is the, like I said, I you know, first came into it wanting to write and then direct. And editing is basically the third chance to write the screenplay. You write it once on the page, once on the set, and once in the editing bay. It's the last draft of the story. And so I get to be part of that process. And I, I love it. It comes with a whole set of unique challenges that are so fun. Yeah, and I think that's actually a good lesson too for people who are trying to get into the business. Because like I take a look at, and think of someone like uh, James Cameron. I mean, I'm sure he wanted to be a writer director from the start, but he got his start working behind the scenes. You know what I mean? So like- Yeah, he was like visual effects originally, wasn't he? Like ILM or something? Yeah, well, he was doing uh, set decoration for like Roger Corman and- Yeah. Like a lot of the, a lot of these people, I mean, like you've, like you're not everyone's gonna start off being a first time director. Uh, like as your first thing so like I think it's it's a good lesson to know for people too that like if they can get in that door and learn a technical skill then I think they become a little bit more valuable to the next uh, employer that they have and also I think it's important to be fluid in what you want when you get into this career um, like I say, if I had like had my, you know, if I was like laser focused on directing, I could go that route, but it's a really hard route because everyone wants to be a director. I mean, like there's a, there's an old joke where, you know, there's like a hundred students first day of film school and the professor walks in and says, Hey, who here wants to be a director? And everyone puts their hand up. And then the, the instructor says, now everyone put down your hand except for one. And no one wants to put their hand down. But that's kind of the realistic sort of outcome of like who's actually going to get a job doing that in the film industry. And the thing that I've learned the most is that the people who have careers in this industry are the people who let go last. And I was determined to just make sure I was, I, I was not going to like have the side gig and then try to make it in film as well mm -hmm. i had to make it the main gig and so i was determined to let go last and as a result i think there's like one other person i went to film school with that's actually still working in the industry wow that's uh actually that's that's a, a really low percentage when you think about it but pretty amazing that you made it work for you 
know but I mean? you know, it kind of makes sense too, because one thing I discovered when I was going to film school is a lot of the people who were there, like I went there fairly late in life. It was very much a career change. Mm-hmm. Um, I was there in my 30s and I was there with kids who were 18, 19, 20. Uh, this was their post-secondary education. And a lot of kids that felt like they were there because their parents basically said, you need to get a post-secondary education no matter what it is. And like, well, I kind of would like to do film. That sounds fun. <laughs> and so there was like some, uh, there was a handful of kids that were there in my class where I could tell that they really didn't have any interest in a long-term career, but just that this sounded more enjoyable than like computer programming or accounting. You know, it's, it's funny. So I actually went to college and I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I, my, my first major was uh, PE, physical education. Mm-hmm. And uh, that did not go so well, but it, you know, I've always really been to movies and I'm like, okay, I'm going to go into cinema studies as my minor and communication by major. And it turns out the technical stuff I am terrible at, mm-hmm. right? And I did okay in the cinema studies part, but I was like, I was too young. I was like, you know, 18, 19, 20. Yeah. And I wasn't quite in that mode of, I want to actually do this for my career. And I could totally see there being a bunch of young kids being like, I love movies. I could do this. And then you find out that like, you know, not everybody either has the acumen or the drive or just, you know, the actual interest they think they do but you know yeah because a career in this industry is not something you you can really kind of want you have to commit to it otherwise it's not going to happen um uh there there are probably people in other positions who like already have family working in the industry or whatnot who have like a certain amount of buffer where they can sort of like fall into it and there are certainly people who like stumble across jobs in the film industry like they just happened to get a job on this one film and it rolled into another job and into another job. And next thing you know, they have a whole career and they didn't even intend on it. That does happen. But uh, for, for most people, and definitely for my, uh, my situation, I, I had nothing to fall back on. I had no financial security. I had no family in the industry. I had no ins whatsoever. The only thing I had was incredible perseverance and stubbornness. So what were you doing before you decided you want to go to college and get into film? Like what was your original career path? Um, so I actually, I, my, originally I was kind of doing what, what you did where my mother was very insistent I had to go to go to uh, university and get a degree and she had decided because I like computers a lot that uh, computer programming would be great for me and she was very kind of insistent that you know you can pursue this whole creative endeavor thing and at the time I think it was probably like drawing comics was my passion Mm-hmm. Um, but she's like, you can, you can pursue that, but you have to have, you know, you have to have like something to fall back on. So, you know, an actual career that, you know, get that first and then you can pursue the, the whole creative thing in case that doesn't work out. 
And it was kind of hard to argue with that logic. It made sense, even though I didn't want to do it. So I went to university for a year and I took computer programming and I hated it. Mm. It was, I absolutely despised it. I ended up like dropping out and had like a huge fight with my mother and had to like cut her out of my life for, it only lasted for like a month before she kind of broke, but she was like, she was so livid that I did that. And um, and then I, you know, bounced around and did a few things and moved out to Vancouver. Um, And then when I was, and I can't remember how old, um, late 20s, I guess, it's around like, uh, around like 2002. um, I started uh, my own video store and Mm. did that. And it was very successful and I opened up a second store or rather bought someone else's store out and Mm -hmm. expanded and did that for five years until you know it was time for a life change and the whole industry I could see was collapsing it's like okay time to time to get out of the the video store industry and it's one of those things I always felt like I got into like a little bit too late like if I been older and was able to start a video store in the 80s I feel like I would have been retiring off of that Oh yeah, for sure. Cause like 2002 is when DVDs are really starting to take off. Yeah. And it was so much cheaper to, to buy then that I think a lot, I think that was one of the reasons why people stopped going to the video stores too, because you could rent the movie or just buy it for. It definitely helped. Although most people didn't want to own the movies. So rentals were still going good. And that was also part of my competitive advantage because all my competition were established and they were still buying videotapes mm. for um, their, you know, more uh, le- less progressive customers that hadn't adopted DVD yet. So they were having to buy both formats for a while, except when I started, I decided DVD only. And mm-hmm. to try to get people over the hump, I would sell DVD players at cost and then give away a bunch of free rentals with every DVD player sale. Oh, that's actually and really so, smart. Yeah. And so I was like, I was basically like giving DVD players away for free essentially at the end of it, mm-hmm. but I was creating customers and, you know, it had a larger selection of movies because I was able to buy twice as many dvds than they could stock about dvds and vhs yeah for for me dvds was a game changer as a just a film fan because when i discovered the whole idea about letterbox like the original (laughs) aspect ratio that like opened up a whole new can of worms for me about cinema and i'm like the dvds are great because you'll get the widescreen version that you have oh yeah i worked at yeah, go ahead. Well, that was why I was an early adopter of DVD. Mm. I'd always wanted to get into Laserdisc. I would like salivate over Laserdisc because it's like, oh my God, they look so good and they're widescreen and they have all these special features. And it was yeah. like, it, it was just like drool inducing. But it was also so prohibitively expensive, especially at that point in my life that I could not afford even a Laserdisc player, much less the Laserdisc to play on, because they were like 100 bucks at that time. Yeah. And when DVD came out, I happened to be in a pretty kind of like, you know, nice cash flow sort of situation. I got like one of the first players that hit the market 
and and just like day one i was buying this and i was it was like hog heaven i absolutely loved it what was the first dvd you bought do you remember first dvd i bought i believe it was desperado it's either okay. desperado or the fugitive one of the two there weren't that many titles at launch yeah that's that's true and i was the desperado disc the one that had the uh, film school uh, short that he did uh no it, everything that came out at launch was bare okay, bones yeah. and this one had like the trailer on it and nothing okay. else because so i remember the first time dvds were available and i didn't have a player yet but i remember distinctively thinking to myself you know what the first movie i'm gonna buy is it's that copy of war games because <laughs> that's got a com- audio commentary from from uh the director and i was mm-hmm. like and you know what's you know what's uh, I've never done is never bought war games, <laughs> <laughs> but that was that was the first one I remember thinking I want to get that, and that was what was cool about the DVD because it was like all these well, movies and, are, and the early days, know. all the special features that were like on those discs were ported over from the laser discs. Yeah, and there were some fantastic special features. Yeah. So my my favorite thing though to this day is when they would be like interactive menus (laughs) i think one of my favorite features that i ever saw on any dvd was actually for the movie um oh what was that called that movie with christopher walken where he's the mob boss that gets kidnapped by a bunch of college kids suicide um, kings suicide kings that's it it had a special feature on the disc where they took this one scene which was like this car chase through a tunnel and you could actually isolate all the different audio tracks of it. Um, so like every single, every single audio effect, the music track, the dialogue tracks, you could isolate them, basically turn on the ones you wanted and turned off the ones you didn't want. And basically like essentially remix the scene with the audio that was available. And that was really cool because it was almost like a, um, like a, a, a little mini lesson in audio mixing mm-hmm. for film. Yeah. And I kind of wish there was more stuff like that. There was apparently one version of Die Hard. I never had it, but there was one DVD version where they took a scene and they actually like gave you the dailies from that scene and a bunch of like angles that aren't even used in the scene. It's the scene where I think uh, uh, Takagi gets killed and they let you basically like recut the scene to your desire with like your dvd remote and then you can practice basically editing a scene that does actually seem like something that i'm surprised you don't see that more now with especially somewhere like the niche dvd the boutique labels like to like go outside the box but it's probably expensive to come up with doing something like that i'm assuming i i think with a lot of the boutique labels because a lot of times they're going back to like older films and in those cases i think it's just like it's a herculean effort just for them to like find a usable print and get it cleaned up for the release much less trying to find the original footage for something which may not even exist anymore so I, I think that's probably something that's kind of like prohibitive there. But also, I think there's a lot of other tools now. It's like people can, you know, yeah. most people have access to, like you can download DaVinci Resolve for free and you can like, 
you put video in there and cut to your heart's content. Is people have much better tools at their disposal than like a, a TV remote. Oh yeah, that's that's true. In fact, uh, I use a little bit of DaVinci Resolve because I am like the most amateur of video editors, and sometimes I have a really dumb idea in my head. I'm like, I got to get it out. <laughs> so it's a pretty amazing that what was hard to get a hold of before is so much easier now. Well, you know, DaVinci Resolve is a pro package. I mean, the, it's, it's the gold standard for doing color correction. Whenever I'm doing like color grading for films, that's what I use mm. every time. Uh, but they, all the other tools that they're integrating into it, the editing, the audio mixing, the, the, uh, the visual effects, it gets better and better every year. And I've used it to, to cut a few small projects, you know? Right. Especially when I'm doing like everything in the post department, if I'm editing sound mixing color grading and doing effects as well and delivering it, then I'll do it all inside of Resolve and then I can do cradle to grave post production inside one application. That's, that's pretty amazing, uh, especially when you think about back in when we were growing up, like it was a lot harder to, you know, I mean, there was really no computer video editing at that time or there weren't dvds it was a lot harder to get into film uh so i was just curious to find out when you were younger what were some of the influences that you had when you were becoming a film fan um oh man i honestly don't know how to answer that i mean i grew up when i was younger the thing that i loved the most were comedies um, and in the 80s, comedies were plenty. Um, you know, it's, it's, there would be like two or three a week in, in the theater constantly. Um, and now it's like comedy is, it seems like it's moved more to the internet than, than it has to theaters. But that was, that was the big thing I loved. Um, and the big thing that was kind of felt like it was off limits a bit to me when I was younger was horror. I just couldn't do it. It was... Uh, I was just too plagued by nightmares. I remember like being, I don't know, however old, like eight, nine, 10 years old, probably 10, let's go with 10. Um, and going to a sleepover with a bunch of friends for someone's birthday. And they rented a couple movies. And I remember the movies very clearly. The first one was Ninja 3, The Domination. <laughs> um, and the second movie was Friday the 13th Part 2. And I was overcome with dread knowing there was no way I could watch a Friday the 13th movie. It was just going to be too much. And so I, uh, I, I basically hid in my sleeping bag for the entire movie and listened to it all from the confines of my sleeping bag, which is probably worse. Oh, for sure. Because than... now your imagination's going overdrive. Yeah, exactly. Anything, everything I've seen in my head is a hundred times worse than what's actually on the screen. And then I, I remember this so clearly, get to the end of the movie, because I didn't watch these movies. I didn't know the pattern of these movies. And so it gets to what it feels like is the end. The last two characters are alive and they're sitting in the cabin and there's like this tense moment, like there's some noise outside. 
boyfriend gets really like anxious and he creeps towards the door and he opens it up as the little dog that's been missing for the whole movie and the girl's like oh puppy and the dog runs over and that's when jason comes crashing through the window behind her and grabs her in slow motion the violins cranking and i have never jumped so high in my entire life and it scarred me Oh man! And so like that cursing that, the fact that the movie lured me into safety. Yeah, the uh, that jump scare definitely worked. Uh, I oh, remember being dead. I remember when I was a kid and we were watching Poltergeist, and I was with my sister and I think maybe my mom was around. I can't remember everybody, but I know for sure my sister was there because she's like, "There's a there's that scene in the mirror, you know, where he starts ripping off his face." She's like, mm. "Close your eyes," because I guess she knew, I should probably saw in the theater something new was ha- going to happen. So I'm closing my eyes and then she tells me that it's, she tells me it's okay now. So I open up my eyes and that's when he starts ripping off his face. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this that is, is cruel. Yeah. I was like, man, this is, this is gross. And like, oh, but it was like one of those things where like I couldn't turn away. That yeah. is legitimately a legitimately <laughs> terrifying scene to me. And I think it's still like incredibly disturbing and well, terrifying. And I can't believe that's in like a PG-13 movie. Yeah. And the, the great thing too is uh, at the time in my room, I had a creepy clown doll and a giant tree outside my window. <laughs> so imagine trying to go to sleep after watching Poltergeist with a giant tree and a creepy clown. Eventually, I was like, "Mom, you got to get this creepy clown out of here. This is this is too much." So, did it did it feel like the movie was made for an audience of one, and you were that audience? It felt that way for sure. And it, you know, it's funny when you look at that back in the movie now, and they're like smoking weed and stuff. You're like, "What is happening?" Like they they would not get away with that anymore. I don't know. Well, I mean, I think the weed smoking is just more plentiful now like you look at any like Seth Rogen movie it's just like everyone's token up you know it's kind of regular but I I remember that like especially when you go back and watch movies and you kind of like see like the kind of you see like the occasional casual pot usage and you'd see like you would see it in two contexts one it would be a horror movie where it would be teenagers that were smoking pot and therefore now they must be punished or you would see adults that were smoking and it was always kind of had this like context surrounding it, like they're adults during prohibition that are sneaking a drink. And it's kind of almost like a statement of like, well, everyone drinks whether or not it's legal. So why not show people taking a drink you know and that's that's always what it felt like to me whenever i'd see like the adults bringing out a joint in a movie like especially in something like poltergeist it's like okay they're they're hip they're liberal they're with it you know but at the same time we're also acknowledging we're, we're acknowledging that people do smoke pot and you know it it, it happens it, it felt real and when you're young and you're uh, getting into movies was did you discover movies on your own or was there somebody that kind of was like hey you gotta you should watch a movie this is a movie and you're like oh i love movies or 
You know what I mean? Or was it like flipping through the channel? Like what got I, you into it when you were younger? I think I was just, it, ever since I first discovered the existence of movies, I think I was just like always infatuated. It seemed magical to me. And my parents were uh, fairly early adopters of VCRs when they first hit the market. I remember going to like the very first video store in our town and seeing what they had. And they had like about 80 VHS movies and about 40 beta tapes that were on the rack. I remember coming back with uh, Popeye and Airplane were the two movies that I first rented on our family VHS machine. And, uh, and we were also subscribed to the, um, the, the paid movie channel um, that played in Canada, which at that point I believe was called First Choice. And then later a competitor also opened up called Super Channel and then they merged and became First Choice Super Channel and then just Super Channel. So in Canada, um, they didn't have HBO yet or did they also have HBO? No, I think the only people who got HBO, I never had HBO. Um, I think the only way you could get HBO in Canada for the longest time was if you had satellite, because there were no, I don't believe there were any cable providers that provided in Canada. All right. And then, so when I was a kid, I had cable. So I was, and I was lucky enough to grow up in a family that could afford the different kind of movie channels. Mm-hmm. So like it was just like I was like a kid in a candy store all the time, just like flipping through. And my mom, who who had a we were also like kind of early VHS people, like recorded like everything. And like I had all these like movies that I could watch that she had recorded. And I kind of wish I like had some of these tapes still just to kind of see like what excited my mom enough to like record a movie. Yeah. You know, and it was just uh you know, cause like, like for me, you know, like my, my parents, they didn't necessarily like were the ones that got me in the film. They just uh, gave me the opportunity to, to, to watch this stuff. And it sounds mm-hmm. like it was kind of similar with you growing up, like having that access to VHS and. and I was definitely the archivist in the family where very early on, I learned, Hey, all these movies that are on, on, you know, this, this paid movie channel, I can record them onto videotape and watch them anytime I want. And then shortly after that, it was like, hey, we got another VCR in the house. I figured out if I hook these things, two things together, then I can duplicate all the movies we rent. And if I put it on SLP mode, then I can fit three movies on one tape. And so it did not take long for me to start to amassing this massive collection of movies um, on on video. I think by the time I stopped doing VHS, like when I moved over to to DVD, I think at that point I probably had something about two thousand movies on videotape. It was it was it was kind of out of control. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and they're they're not small, so it's obviously got a lot of space. You gotta. Oh yeah, for all like those bookshelves and bookshelves. But I remember, like, one of the one of the most kind of I think defining things for me was my father was and still is incredibly into sports. Sports okay. is his life. He loves sports, and he would go to see every local hockey game constantly. 
And my brother, who was, you know, enjoyed it enough, would go with my father to go see every hockey game. So it's like once every two weeks, they'd like go out to hockey night. Mm -hmm. And I both did not want to be included in hockey night because I absolutely hated hockey. I found it so boring to go and complained every time they dragged me along. Uh, But at the same time, I also felt left out that they were going to do this thing and I wasn't going to do anything. And so my mother, in search of some kind of democratic fairness, decided, okay, when your father and your brother go out to a hockey game, we'll go out to a movie. And so once every two weeks, every time they went to hockey, we went out to go see a movie. I would pick a movie out of the newspaper and we would go see it. And and that was our kind of thing for quite a few years was just constantly do that. And I always enjoyed that. Yeah, that's that's one of the nice things about going to the movies with your family because it's like, like I remember a lot of films that I saw with my family. Like I can like picture the actual movie theory went to, you know, mm-hmm. because like, you know, especially if you're close to your family, it's, it's definitely a, an experience. Cause like you're kind of sharing this thing that you love together. Um, yeah. And it's like, um, like I think back at like all the movies that my parents took me to growing up. And it was just like, I feel very lucky that I was able to see return of the Jedi and ghostbusters. And uh, I'll never forget my first R rated movie was, uh, predator when my dad took me to when i was nine years old so you know just that that experience you know it's, it's something so i always remember in, in canada our rating system is a little bit different um where a r- rated r here comes with much kind of like higher consequences than it does in the u.s yeah. um but the the canadian rating board is also more uh comparatively lenient on films so something that would be r-rated in the u.s chances are would be rated 14a here which just means you have to be 14 or above to to get in without a parent or guardian but if something is rated r that's the equivalent of like an nc-17 in the states where it's like no one under 18 allowed in period and there were some movies that the states would never consider NC-17 that Canada rated R, which meant as a kid, I couldn't get into them. So I remember the, the kind of breaking point was one of these times when I went out with my mother to go see a movie while my brother and my father were at a hockey game. Um, I picked out the movie I wanted to see, uh, and it's probably going to seem goofy in retrospect, but the movie I wanted to see was The Principal with James Belushi and Louis Gossett Jr. Wow. Because it looked like it was funny. It's like, he's a, he's a, a, a white principal taking over an inner city school. Hilarity ensues. That's where my mind was when I was like 12 <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, that's um, not a comedy. No. Yeah, no, it is not a comedy. <laughs> but I knew James Belushi from comedies. Yeah. And I'd seen Louis Gossett Jr. be funny too, even though he would like flip-flop between comedy or action or you know, he'd do anything. Um, So I could see the comedic potential for this premise and I thought it was a comedy. And then we get to the theater and they won't let me in because it's radar. And my mother just started to like 
throw a fit with the poor girl at the box office. Oh, no. Like, if my child wants to go see this movie and I'm with my child, then we're going to go see this movie. She, like, got all, like, caring about it. And she would do that. She would, like, stick up for the things that I wanted, especially when it didn't feel like, you know, just that I should not be able to have access to it. She felt like I should be the one allowed to make this decision for my child, not the theater. Yeah, that's funny too. Never, nevertheless, we did not see the principal. Oh man, because it's funny because, like, when I think of the principal, I, I think yeah, it's rated R, but like I couldn't imagine it being rated like NC seventeen. So like, it's yeah, so, no, it's, it's the difference between Canada and the United States. Yeah, it's violent and it's adult, but it's not that bad. And honestly, there weren't that many movies like that that got like rated that harshly. I don't know why the Canadian rating board decided to like do it with that one but whatever i saw it years later and it was it was okay you know i actually just on a complete aside i was thinking about jim belushi the other day and i and his career is actually a lot more interesting than i think we give him credit for because he spent all those times doing that sitcom like he's in a lot of pretty decent movies which is kind of interesting yeah he did there's this one movie he did um which I am not going to remember the title of, um, but it, it's like, I want to say like mid nineties, it came out and it was like a straight up, like hard boiled thriller. And I remember it opened with like him being dead and him narrating his own death sort of thing. And then it like flashes back and it's, it's this whole like film noir detective story. And it was, I remember it being a really neat movie and like, not what you would expect from James Belushi, who is usually like the goofy guy. You'd think of like, you know, taking care of business or, you know, stuff like that from, yeah. from James Belushi. K-9. <laughs> yeah, K-9. Uh, <laughs> the year we got nothing but dog partner movies. You know, I do like Turner and Hooch because it just reminds me of this one time I was at a, a bar and it was on the television and there was no sound or subtitles, but I just sat there and watched the whole thing. And I was like, that was just like one of the most Zen moments I've ever had, just having a beer while watching Turner Hurston silent while there was, you know, bar stuff going on. I don't know. What... You know, that's a thing that I try to do with stuff that I cut. Like what one of the things that I believe and I firmly hold this principle is that if a movie is working, you should be able to turn off the volume and watch it and understand everything that's happening. You should be able to intuitively deduce like what the story is mm -hmm. and vice versa. You should be able to just listen to the audio of a movie without watching it and be able to tell what the story is. And I think as long as you fulfill those two things then you've got something and if it feels like it's lacking when you, when you isolate those variables then something's missing. That is that is a great point because I I think sometimes we lose that kind of visual language uh, in some movies because maybe they're spending more time on like dialogue or whatnot that uh, like the great movies are the ones that you could watch on silent. Mm -hmm. You know, like there's uh I think there was uh, Soderbergh did this experiment where he he basically took Raiders of the Lost Ark and decolorized it and put and, and stripped all the audio off and put like different music over top of it 
And he did it as an experiment to basically like disassociate the audience from what they're watching, like their familiarity with the Raiders of the Lost Ark because everyone's seen a gazillion times. So if you remove the familiarity of the audio, the familiarity of the score, and the familiarity of the look by desaturating it, and now watch the movie and see how it works. And you can kind of see just like the masterfulness of Spielberg's composition and how that movie works on just a visual level. Oh, yeah. I mean, what's funny right now about Spielberg is like, I think you and I would agree he's one of the greatest film directors of all time. Yeah, like, I'd agree. We're like in this like weird period now where like people are like, like especially younger fans are like reevaluating him as like maybe overrated or not a good director in the first place. And it's, it makes me really uncomfortable to be honest with you. <laughs> I, I say, I think it's, that's mostly just like, there's always like a certain amount of wanting to take down sacred cows to a certain degree. It's like, oh, I've, I've been told my whole life that Spielberg is the goat, but is he really? It's like, I think that's, there, there's a, natural and possibly even healthy skepticism there sure explore that um but also have a good reasoning for it and i don't know i find when i watch spielberg's films it's like i there are very few filmmakers in the world who have such a masterful grasp of blocking and um and comp uh, composition of shots as he does. He is really effective at basically taking one or taking like three shots in a, in a movie, what someone would shoot is like three different angles, but actually having it be one continuous take where the camera is constantly moving and reframing into a different shot. So you'll have a wide that becomes a two shot that you know slides over to become a single by the end of the scene and you've essentially got three different setups and he's also making those setups occur um on on beats that are driven by the character and the story so his camera is not just moving for the sake of moving it's you know Michael Bay is the worst for this. He just moves his camera regardless of why. He has no idea why he's moving the camera other than the fact that he's bored. But Spielberg is moving the camera because he's telling you important information about the story with it. And this is probably one of his best skills as a filmmaker. And I think it's probably unparalleled with any other filmmaker that's working today. Do you think the way people talk about movies now uh especially online uh especially especially on twitter do you do you think that people have lost the ability to look at a film's visual language and only focus on the superficialities of the film i think it's always been that way to a certain degree um, short answer is I think it's probably better than it was. And the reason is, is that I think people have more tools to describe what they're looking at simply because they're being exposed to more criticism um, or more analysis of films, mm -hmm. um, you know, with things like YouTube channels and whatnot. And I think there's a lot of good stuff out there, but I think there's also a lot of 
bad stuff out there. And it's kind of like, I'll have, I'll have a lot of people when they talk to me about editing and they describe their own abilities as an editor, which is like, you know, they can open up the software and like cut a couple clips together and eventually like get what they're looking for. Um, but they will describe their own ability as an editor is basically being knowing just enough to get into trouble and or or knowing enough to know that they don't know anything i've heard people say that before and i think that's where a lot of people kind of sit with film criticism because they they'll see a lot of very surface level analysis of films and then that is kind of their baseline then they feel equipped to make that surface level analysis and that's great you got to start somewhere um but most of the criticism and analysis of films that you see through, you know, math sites like YouTube and whatnot, it's not at like the Pauline Kale level of criticism. And if it were, people wouldn't watch it because it would just be like too heady and deep. Um, it, it would be boring to them and less interesting. And so people are taking from it what they want because ultimately it's like it's an entertainment medium. Uh, so I think people have more language to talk about films today and are probably having more interesting conversations about films. But I think there's a lot of people who feel like they know a lot more about films than they really do. Yeah, I, I, I see that a lot. In fact, uh, for me, and like there's still things I'm learning all the time. So I try not to do the hot take, but it feels like the hot take is what people gravitate towards more right now. And the, well, the other... and, and that's just social media too. Yeah. Like social media is always going to push like the hot take, whatever's contentious, whatever is going to start an argument is always going to be pushed to the surface because that's what drives engagement and makes social media companies money. It's, you know, it's there, there are systems that are algorithmically designed to make us fight each other, which I both exploit and kind of loathe. So do you think it's easier to get younger movie fans to appreciate movies from different uh, periods, or do you think it's a lot harder now? Because when I was a kid, I had, like, we'd have cable. And there'd be a rotating list of movies and there'd be like, here's a comedy, here's maybe an older movie. But now it's a lot harder to, I think, for like younger fans to get exposed to more types of movies unless they're just clicking on the, a random movie on a, on a streaming service. Do, do, do you feel that it's easier or harder for them to I don't know discover. I think that's always been an issue I mean like I know that's always been an issue for me where like I think I've probably been actively said at some point where the uh I was only interested in watching movies if they were made after I was born so I had like Jaws was my cutoff. If it was made before Jaws, I am less interested in this movie and there would be movies that I'd watch but it would feel like more like homework than it would feel like something I was actively interested in. And it's something that I've like since sort of like trained myself out of and I've gone back to a lot of older films. But it's um I think it's a it's a very easy mindset for people to be in. And 
at a certain point, it's like people are going to be into what they're going to be into. You know, it's kind of hard to to dictate what that's going to be for people. And for a lot of people, it's going to be like, you know, what is it that came out, you know, in the last three years? They're they're interested in the here and now, not, you know, from five years ago or, or even from like before they were born. So there's also just a lot to watch now. Like even when we were kids, like we 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 grew up in the video store era. So we all of a sudden had this unprecedented access to all sorts of films um, that other people just simply did not have before. And that's only gotten bigger and depending on how you look at it worse, there's so much content now and such a glut of it that there are entire films that pass by and I don't even know that they exist. And that's just kind of the way it is now. And it's, uh, there's, you, you, it, it is, it is impossible to keep up with everything that comes out because there's so much of it and you have to pick and choose your battles. And then to go back and say, but also you need to go back to the cinema of 1946. <laughs> you know, for some people they're just like, yeah, but I have like 20 episodes of TV that are sitting there waiting for me to watch that I haven't gotten to yet, you know? And, and then there's other people who, um, there's, there's a podcast that I used to edit for someone else um, where they basically would like just go through like the really old Hollywood films from like the silent era and into the early talkies. And they, you know, would highlight as many of those films and as many of those uh, those golden era actors as they could. So I think there's also an audience that is just like, that is their niche. That is their thing is going back to like, you know, the, the old early film industry films. They're in love with that. Everyone has different tastes. Oh, that, that is true. Especially uh, nowadays, just because there's so many different choices. Um, but do you, do you, are you positive about the future of, of cinema and cinema uh, criticism or are you a little bullish about the future? Uh, am I certain about the future? God, no. Um, and I think that's because like the film industry is always in a certain amount of state of flux. Right now we are in a massive state of flux where we have... Uh, basically the streaming war is going on with everyone and their mother trying to like reign supreme over streaming content and it's a little bit of a gold rush too because we have all of these players that suddenly need all this content and it's got to come from somewhere so all of a sudden a lot of things that would never get made are getting made and that's good for creators uh, it's also harmful in the fact that anything that's on streaming is usually paying a lot less than jobs used to pay and so that becomes an issue um but this bubble is going to burst like having to cancel stuff and having bitten off a little bit more than they can chew and even though they're still like sitting at the top of the game in terms of like number of subscribers and how much money they make with streaming it's feels like it's starting we're starting to see the reaction to the bubble and we we're we're on the other side to where it might potentially pop what happens after it pops 
I don't know. Um, less work. I don't like the sound of that. I like to be working. So it's, um, but something else will always be on the horizon. Like this has always happened in some form or another in the film industry. What form it takes, I don't know. Um, and the best you can do is try to stay as ahead of it as you can so that you can be part of whatever it shifts into. That's, that's the biggest issue. Um, for film criticism, I think probably the, the biggest change has been the fact that paid film critic is kind of like a joke as a career at this point. You can't make money being a film critic. Mm -hmm. um, it, or at least it's very hard to. There's, I think, a, some, a few people who do it. Like I imagine, um, what's his name? Roger Roper. Richard Roper. Um, Richard Roper. Uh, I'm mixing Roger Ebert and Richard Roper. Uh, Richard Roper, I imagine he probably is able to sustain himself on film criticism because he's like cemented himself in that position. But um, he, he's, he's like legacy at this point. And I think for someone wanting to come into film criticism, the idea of being able to do it for a living is almost a joke. I think the one way you could do it is if you could build a successful YouTube channel with Patreon subscribers, mm -hmm. um, that could work, even though there's a lot of people in that game. So it's kind of hard to, to fill out a niche there. So, um, and I think that's the big change. It's moved away from print. It's moved away from television. It's moved away from paid professionals doing criticism and it's turned into people on YouTube and people with blogs, but even larger, and I think worse, because I don't have a lot of respect for it as a, as a metric of any kind, but is the Metacritic scores that you get with Rotten Tomatoes. Mm -hmm. And that's what majority of people look at. They don't look at what a critic thinks of something. They look at a number of what the aggregate of critics think about something. And uh, that does, that's not film criticism. That's, that's boring. Well, luckily for you, you are currently working and getting paid to do what you, you love. And hopefully other people will get that opportunity to experience something like that. So do you have any last bit of advice you'd give somebody listening to this who's uh, trying to get into the business? Um. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'd, I'd echo what I said earlier with like the, the, the people who have the career in this industry are the people who, who let go last. Um, one of the reasons I got into film so late in life was because I subscribed to the Robert Rodriguez uh, philosophy of filmmaking, which was why go to film school? Film school is a waste of money. They can't teach you how to make a film. All of that's true and accurate, yes. Um, instead, just go make your own film for the pr price it would, go, it would cost you to go to film school, and then you can sell that film or at least have the experience of making a film, which you'll learn a lot more. Also true, yes. I tried to do that for many, many years. The obstacle that I ran up against 
is that mm -hmm. I was never mm -hmm. able to amass people who wanted to join in on me on my lunacy for making a film for no money. And I couldn't amass the small amount of money it would take to make a film just through, mm -hmm. you know, working regular Joe jobs. And so as a result, my dream never happened. And that's when I went off and did the video sort of thing. And then I realized, wait a minute, if I go to film school, I can get a student loan for that. They'll pay me essentially to go to school. And at school, there will be equipment and there will be other people who wanna make films. And it was just like a light bulb went off in my head and I almost was like kicking myself for not having thought of this earlier and for having denigrated film schools for so long. And, that, and then that's when I got the scholarship and went to film school. And, you know, it was, it was all essentially kind of true. I didn't learn anything there. I was doing as much teaching of the other students as the teachers were at that point, because I had self-taught myself enough, you know, so much by that point. But it gave me a place to have projects to work on, to have other people to work on them with. And by the time I left school, I had this reel that I was able to get work with and contacts that I'd already made to start working in film. So it's, I, I try not to knock film school too much because if you're dedicated to it and you know what you want, it can actually jumpstart your career. I would not be working in film if I had not actually gone to film school. And I didn't learn a single thing there. Well, I'm glad that uh, you had that experience and you're, you're working and having a good successful career. And if there's somebody who wants to learn even more about you, is there anything you'd like to plug that they can go to to learn more? Yeah, if you if you want to get in touch with me, yell at me or whatever, you can reach me on um, Twitter at Ashley Lynch. Um, other than that, I guess I'd just say uh, check out the new season of Ninjago, which has probably started by this point, um, which is a pretty, uh, pretty epic and amazing uh, season, if I do say so myself. It's uh, one, of, one of the biggest and coolest things that I have ever done to date yet. So I'm pretty proud of it. Excellent. So thank you for uh, having this conversation with me. And uh, it was great getting to actually learn even more about you. So Thank thanks you. again. It's a pleasure. For